The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of his people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. This is the word of the Lord. The, uh, the book of Hebrews was written to early Christians who've been experiencing hardship and answers the question, as a Christian, what does it mean to deal with suffering? As a Christian, how do you deal with it? How do you cope with suffering? And so far, we've learned a lot of things. And for some of you, it, it may have been a, a bit scattered. It may have felt a bit scattered because that's how Hebrews, it's read, it's read like a letter and uh, you have to really read it intently with an understanding of the Old Testament. It makes it a little complicated. So I'm going to kind of walk through. We talked about Jesus being the final word. He doesn't negotiate. And, uh, and that speaks tremendous implications for us. We've talked about him being our king. Tremendous implications for us. We talked about him being our Emmanuel, God with us, which means he is for us, for you. We talked about him being our counselor. Uh, tremendous comfort for people who are being persecuted. Tremendous reminders for people who are, who are uh, being persecuted because of what they believe, because of the values they possess. Now, last week we said that Jesus Christ, he gives us rest. So not only is our counselor, but he draws us into him to give us a soulful rest that we cannot find anywhere else. This week, we're going to talk about the importance of what it means to have Jesus as our advocate. That's what this passage is about. And uh, what does that mean to be our advocate? There are three things. We need to learn what it, why do we need an advocate? What is an advocate? You know, how is Jesus Christ the advocate that we need? And lastly, how do we apply the notion of Jesus being our advocate in our lives? Why do we need it? How is Jesus the advocate that we need? And how do we apply the truth of him being our advocate? First, <clears throat> why do we need an advocate? If you look at the beginning of this text, verse 18, uh, the author writes, The former regulation was set aside because it's weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Basically, the, the author is saying Jesus Christ is his better hope and the author's talking as if everybody is trying to draw near to God. And in the ancient times, how did you draw near to God? You drew near to God through priests. You drew near to God through sacrifices. But the author's saying is all those things are obsolete, done away with, fallible, obsolete, <coughs> inadequate, 
But Jesus Christ is the only way. Now, in verse 25, he runs through his logic, and he gets to verse 25 and says there's, a, there's this word that he uses that pretty much sums up this entire text. And the word that he uses is he says that Jesus Christ intercedes for us. He intercedes. When you hear the word intercede, we often think about, at least growing up in the church, I thought about it as a priest going before God, begging for our forgiveness, pleading for God's people. But that's actually, that's partly what the author is trying to convey. But the, the author is really trying to bring in a distinct legal term. This word intercessor, this word to intercede is, is, a, is a legal term that he's bringing in. It's as if you have a representative in court. It's as if there's this representative that stands for you in court uh, when you're on trial. Now, we're going to come back to that. You've got to put that on the shelf for a little bit. We're going to come back to that. Um, we have to talk about why we need this. Now, when you look at yourself, in, everybody came to church today, you looked at yourself in the mirror at some point. You had to have done it, right? I hope you did it, right? Um, you're going to look at yourself in the mirror. Everybody look, likes to look at particular angles when they look at themselves in the mirror. I know because I see a lot of your selfies. You like taking pictures of yourself at certain angles, Mariah Carey, famous singer, right? Um, she, her, if you look at her public official photos, it's been said that she only takes photos of herself from the right side of her face, okay? Um, she hates the left side of her face. She hates photos taken from the left side of her face, right? That means that, you know, when you're standing on the red carpet, she's, she always turns right, to the right side, right? She has a little bit of a tilt. That's how Mariah Carey is. Now, look at your pictures. You take a bunch of pictures of yourself. Which ones are the ones that you delete? You delete the ones that you don't like. It doesn't matter how beautiful everybody else is in the picture. If you don't like yourself in that picture, you're going to delete it. That's how it works. We only like to look in the mirror from certain angles. In other words, there's this image that you have of yourself, how you look, how you want to project how you look in front of other people. You've got that image in here, but you're always wondering, is that how other people, when they look at me, you can't look at them from certain angles, right? Do they see me the way I see myself, the way I hope they would see? And you're not really sure. And that's just the physical aspect of yourself. You're always walking around. Every one of you walks around. There's not a single person, unless you're really wise, ironically, there's not a single person in this room on a daily basis who says, who walks around thinking of themselves as a fool. Everybody here believes they've attained a certain level of intelligence and wisdom and experience in life. And the thing is, you have an image of yourself that you want to project and portray to other people about how you are viewed in character, in stature, right? Am I a lovable person? Am I a ruthless person? Do I have integrity? Am I truly viewed as honest? Am I truly viewed as someone uh, who, who speaks truth? Deep down inside, we're not sure what people really think of us. We're not really sure if we... Forget about what people think of us, what we're projecting. Deep down inside, we're not sure of what we really are. We have an idea of what we believe we are. We have an idea of what we want to project. We're not sure. We're afraid that we don't have that character that we hope to have. 
How do you really know who you are? Because you can't rely on your own word. Now, there's been a lot said about this generation in particular, right? This new up-and-coming generation. If you've worked anywhere in marketing, if you've worked anywhere uh, in a large corporation, there are memos written about the millennial generation and how to handle them in interviews, okay? If you haven't gotten there, if you're not a senior manager, if you're not a manager in any large corporation, you'll get there, right? You're all aspiring young people. You're, you're going to get there. And if you get there, you'll get these memos, You're going to be trained on how to speak to the millennial generation, right? Now, um, because one of the things that they say is that they can't take truth about other people to show them different angles of who they are apart from what they, how they want to be viewed, right? But think about this. Let's say you're a writer. There are some writers out here. There are musicians out here. There are singers out here, right? There are doctors here. There are lawyers here. There are people who work in finance and who work in, uh, or is it finance, right? Uh, or who work in uh, marketing, right? Um, how do you know? How do you know? If you're a writer, how do you know if you're a good writer? It's very important, right? Because you can be, you, it's absolutely certain that you can be confident and certain about yourself and your abilities. You can be comfortable with yourself, but that doesn't make you good. Not objectively. That does not make you good. You can't live just with your own evaluation of yourself. It's how we're built. It's how we're designed. It's the beauty of so many people here in this room and so many dimensions to each person. You can't live, one of the drawbacks, you can't live with your evaluation of yourself. You can't live with your own verdict of yourself. You see where I'm going with this? Everyone here needs somebody on the outside, outside of themselves, telling them that they're okay, telling them that they're good. You need, it's not just anybody. You need somebody credible, credible in that particular field, telling you that you are okay, telling you that you are good. A writer needs what? Credible readers. A singer needs what? People who are audibly trained to be able to say, yes, you're good. You're pretty good. You need listeners. If you work in a corporate job in a certain field, it doesn't matter what your brother thinks. It doesn't matter what your sister thinks or what your parents think about you to some degree, right? If you're working in a corporate field, it matters what your superiors think of you. People that you have deemed credible. That's why we have annual reviews. It's why we have six-month reviews, right? It's why we rely on our boyfriends and our girlfriends, our husbands and our wives, our children to tell us, yes, you're okay. Yes, you are beautiful. Yes, you are handsome. Yes, that looks nice on you. Yes, this is your place, your thing. We need to know. We're afraid to know. We're afraid to know. And that's why we get so angry when we don't hear what we want to hear. Because deep deep down inside, there's this resounding truth It's part of our DNA, our spiritual DNA. There's this resounding truth that says, you are not as adequate as you think you are. You are not as adequate as you hope yourself to be. Think about this. How do we try so hard to prove ourselves in our work? If if your self-evaluation is enough, why do you try so hard where you are? Why do you try to go beyond yourself? Above and beyond, we use that phrase. Why do we do that? Why is there a need to do that? If your evaluation, oh, I don't care what other people think, I just care what I think, that is the biggest lie you tell yourself every day because it doesn't explain why you try so hard to impress other people all the time. And you can justify it in every way, but you know it's true. 
Deep down inside there's this resounding truth. Life is one big trial. It's why we try to prove ourselves in our work, in sports, in our social lives. We can't escape it. Life is one big trial. You're constantly arguing for yourself. You're constantly standing for yourself. You're constantly trying to prove yourself that I am okay. You can't rest on your own evaluation. You need the validation of other people around you. Somebody who is credible, who has to acknowledge you, honor you, tell you you are beautiful, justify you. That's what we need. There's this place in the book of Esther. If you haven't read the book of Esther, <clears throat> it's kind of in the middle of the, of the Old Testament. And it's, um, it's an interesting book. Uh, without going into the, the context of the book, um, I want to share with you just a, a kind of an embarrassing narrative in this book. You have Haman. Now, Haman in this book, he's this insecure, evil, ruthless, just this terrible person. And what does he want? His desire is to really have the honor of the king. He wants the honor of the king. And so he's constantly trying to manipulate this king to receive honor. And one day, the king approaches Haman. In one of the chapters, he approaches Haman, and he actually asks him, he says, what should be done for a man that the king delights to honor? And Haman, he's thinking, he must be talking about me. What other person has given his life for the king the way I have given my life for the king? He must be talking about him. That's what he's thinking. So he says, here's what you do. You got to give him your royal robe. You got to give him the white, that horse that you ride on. You got to lead him into the city on your horse. You got to put your crest on him. And you got to appoint somebody to lead that horse through the city so that people will know that this man is the one that you want to honor. Basically, what he's saying is you have to let him look like you. And you got to lead him to the city as if he is you. Right? And so the king says, quick, you need to do, you, I want you to do the, be the guy who leads the horse. Do this for this other man that I want to honor. And Haman is broken by this. This evil, insecure, ruthless individual, so easily broken and shaped by the honor of another person. The text actually says that he rushed home with his head covered in grief. Why? Because the greater the promotion, the greater the award, the greater the celebration. I needed his honor to justify me. And when we don't get it, what happens? We're just devastated. We're just destroyed by that. All we need is somebody on the outside who is credible, telling us you are treasured, you are valuable, you are beautiful, you are justified. That's why we're desperate to win all the time. It's why we're desperate to get our shots in all the time. Because to push somebody down is to elevate us. That's what we do. That's why we need to step all over other people to get ahead. There's no straight line up, right, in that sense. You're constantly zigzagging. You're constantly navigating, maneuvering, shifting, right? And there's damage that's created there, right? Maybe it's our career. Maybe it's finding the right spouse, Maybe it's having the most well-behaved children, the perfect children. Whatever it is, these are the things that define us. These are the things that we are putting and using. Every day, parents, you are using your children to prove who you are. Every day. 
Every day, husbands and wives, you are using your spouse to prove who you are. Every day, every day we are using our careers. We are using our careers to justify us. How well you do in your career, how advancing you are in your career. You are, every day you've got dreams, you've got big dreams. Every day you get one step closer, you are using that. You're putting that and you are using this as you speaking for yourself. That's why we use our resumes in our day and age to justify us, even to get a date. We do that, right? Whatever it is, it defines us, it proves us. Who are we really trying to earn favor from. Now, philosophers and writers through centuries have whittled without going through a discourse on that. They said at the end of the day, it's because we're looking for the ultimate credible person who will justify us. We're trying to amount, and that's why we're trying to live good moral lives. We're putting all this stuff together so we can say, package it up very neatly and say, yes, please validate me, justify me. We're trying to earn the favor of God. We want a verdict from God because we're thinking, if I can get the approval of my peers, if I can get the approval of my boss, if my parents say I'm okay, then the trial is over. And yet, it's not over. It's never over, you see. Life is a trial. The beginning of the book, life is a wilderness. It is a desert wilderness. One of the themes that runs through this book. As you're going through the book, you start to put other stuff, other layers into the book of Hebrews. It's a very, very complex text if you haven't realized by now, right? Life is a trial. That's what the author is saying. Life is a trial. What we're really after is averted. We're constantly under fire. We're, looking, we're under fire and we're, we're using our looks for an advantage. We're using our friendships and our relationships for an advantage. We're, looking for, we're using our education and our career status as an advantage. And we're using our morals and our goodness as an advantage. We're using anything and everything. That's why we're so competitive in every way. And everybody here is competitive in some way. Everybody here has to be competitive in some way. Because we're after the verdict. We need something from the outside. What we're really looking for is somebody from the outside, the ultimate somebody from the outside. God is a person. We want his validation. We want his approval. And we're constantly on trial. We're constantly in court. Now the question is, who do you have as your advocate? Who stands for you? Who's speaking for you? Hebrews, the author says, you're constantly under fire. People are attacking you constantly. People are criticizing you constantly. Hebrews says, you're not alone. You're not alone. You are not alone because if your life is a trial, you know who's alone? Religious people are alone. Religion is the most lonely thing to get into, all right? Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, religion says this, I need to make a case for myself. If you grew up in a church, and you've never come clean about who you really are, if you've never come clean, right, if you've never said specifically, in specific ways, here are ways in which I am broken in life, in sin. I am a sinner, and I want to tell you, here are the ways that I've been broken in sin. I can't represent myself, because if I represent myself, I'm so fallible. The case is closed. I don't deserve a good verdict. If you haven't done that, you're still making a case for yourself. You know how religious people make a case for themselves? Here's what they say. They say, 
not so many words or many more words. Look, I'm a good person. I grew up in a church. I know these people. I've known these leaders. I'm pretty obedient. You look at your record and you say, I'm a pretty obedient person. I'm a good citizen. I obey the law. I'm getting into, I'm not great at tithing. I'm getting into tithing, right? I'm serving. I'm teaching. I'm acceptable, right? I'm, I'm better than those guys, right? I'm better than those guys, right? That's, that's some of you, there's nobody there. Some, some of you, you do that. We do that. That's not Christianity at all. If that's the way you grew up in the church, you got it all wrong. I got it all wrong. Guys, I got it all wrong growing up, okay? And that's disastrous. You're younger than me. You're going to get it earlier than me, all right? Jesus Christ, according to the book of Hebrews, is the only hope, the only advocate you need. I'm going to tell you why he's the only advocate you need, okay? Your life is on trial. That's the answer to the first point. Okay, why do we need one? Because you're on trial every day. You can't escape it, all right? Why is Jesus the advocate you need? For all of us. When I say all of us, the whole world. He's the only advocate, the only hope. Verse 24 to 25, Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So here's Jesus Christ. The author is saying he is the high priest. We said that the priest is somebody, we thought the priest is somebody who comes to God and is begging and says, I love these people, you love these people, please forgive them, I know they're wrong, I know they're wrong, please forgive them. Jesus Christ is the high priest who intercedes. And we said that the word intercede is as if you are appearing in court with a representative. Now, here's how you put it all together. <clears throat> like an advocate in a courtroom, that's what the word means. The word connotes, here's the work of the priest. The work of the priest is not to beg your forgiveness, you know, pleading before this judge and saying, oh, you know, please forgive them. I know that they've done wrong in this area. I mean, it's, it's that. It's a lot more than that. It's a lot differently than that. You would not want a lawyer to represent you like that. That is not the way, that is not a good case. If you are guilty, that is not a good case for you, okay? In the ancient times, you never represented yourself, to represent, to appear in court. Today you have some stories of people, miraculous stories of people who represent themselves in court. Talk to anybody who studies law here. They will tell you, don't ever do that. It is foolish to do that. You never want to, you may have that once in a lifetime shot or story where somebody represents themselves pretty well. But if you got into civil trouble in the ancient times or today, you could never represent yourself well. The author is saying, you have an advocate who goes before you, who appears in court for you. Why? Because in the ancient times, as we do today, you always have, you have to hire, you have to bring somebody in who represents you in court. If that advocate performs well in court, you performed well in court. If that advocate does not perform well in court, you are failing in court. If the advocate is right, if his case is solid, your case is solid. If that advocate's case is poor, your case is poor. If the advocate wins, you win. If the advocate loses, you've lost. All the benefits of the advocate, his brilliance, his righteousness, is transferred to you. That's having an advocate, somebody who represents you in court. That's what it is. He substitutes, in a sense, for you. So if he wins, you win. 
You are in your advocate. That's what it means. You are in there. Okay, when they look at him, they're looking at you. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means. It's not, if you've come to church thinking, you know, Jesus has been a good example all my life, but he's not your advocate, you're losing that, in that trial that we call life. If you come in saying Jesus is a good religious leader, I love his teachings, I agree with his teachings, you are not doing well in court. You are not. And you won't do well. You're not going to fare well in court. Okay? If you uh, come to Jesus and you say, well, you know, I pray, I go to church, I try to obey, I try to live as Jesus lived, I, I really believe in his teachings, I have some semblance of the fact that Jesus died for my sins, I get that, um, that's not going to hold up in court. Okay, I grew up thinking that. I grew up thinking that, you know, I, I believe that who Jesus is. I, I know that Jesus is God. I, I get that, you know, uh, but I'm going to try to live my life the way Jesus asked me to live. Um, I realize if you live like that, that is disastrous for your life. It's not just not right. It's not just incorrect. This is stuff that begins at the core and works its way out. It is disastrous for you, friends. That's what it's saying. Here's what it means to be a Christian. It's not to come to Jesus to hire him as your helper, as your consultant, as your example, as a leader. To be a Christian means to be in Jesus as your advocate. So that when, when God looks at your advocate, he's looking at you. It comes down to who you have as your advocate. If you're representing, you may say Jesus is your advocate, but if you are the one out there proving yourself, what you're really saying is, God, look at me. You are representing yourself, and that is fallible. It's not going to hold up in court. But if you're saying, yes, I'm all these things. I'm hiding myself in my advocate. I'm going to let him do the work for me. I'm going to let him represent me. I'm going to let him speak for me. I'm going to let him plead for me. Now, you have a solid case. Okay? To be a Christian means to be in Jesus, to be in your advocate. And he's the best advocate you could ever have. He's our only hope because he is righteous, because he is holy, because he is perfect. And the author says he is the perfect high priest. He has a permanent priesthood. He will never step down from office. So he is the perfect representative that you could come to. He is the perfect representative to intercede for you. So if you were wise, you would be in union with him. You would be as close to him as possible because he's going to take your place. See, a lot of people believe that being a Christian is going to church, trying to obey. I don't know how many people I've spoken to over decades in ministry. I want to be a good Christian, and I try really hard, and right off the bat, that's where you go wrong. You see? You haven't even finished your first sentence, and you've gone wrong. I want to be a good Christian. And I'm trying hard. Ugh, you got you wrong. There you go. 
And you may have some understanding that Jesus died for your sins, but here's a question. Who do you have as your advocate in life? I'm not just talking about when we're talking about spiritual things here. I'm talking about in life, who is your advocate? When you're at work and under pressure and under fire, who is your advocate? That's going to keep you from falling apart inside when people around you are criticizing you, critiquing you, blowing you up. Who's your advocate? Can you stand? There's a difference between someone who's got poise and courage in the midst of fire and and tremendous temptation and somebody who just falls apart, just falls apart all the time. There's a reason why that happens, okay? Medication isn't going to solve that problem. We can understand that, yes, I have these semblances and I'm trying. Who do you have as your advocate? Do you get that you're so broken you can't stand for yourself? Here's Jesus as our advocate. He stands before the ultimate throne, before the ultimate trial, before the king and the judge of the universe, and he's interceding. You know how he intercedes, right? Here's here's what he doesn't do, okay? You're brought to trial. Your profile, your sins laid out like a deck of cards, very, very clear, front face up, right? Everything is clear. The evidence is there. You are condemned. You stand condemned. Here's Jesus as your advocate. Here's what he doesn't do, okay? He doesn't say, because I thought this growing up, pretty much up until like mid-20s, okay? I thought this, right? Some of you are in your mid-20s, I I believe, right? Um, He doesn't come up to the judge, and he doesn't say, yes, I get it. Yes, he's a sinner. Yes, but please, I died for him. So he deserves one more chance. Let him live his life for you. Because I paid the price and I've afforded one more chance, a second chance in his life. I've earned that for him, please. And then God says, fine, fine, all right. You know, we'll give him another shot. Listen, if that's true, if that's actually true, I mean, it's not that ridiculous, right? But if it's that true, if the heart of that is true, it is a disaster because it could be equally true that one day God says, you know what, I'm tired. You know how many times you've come before me? I'm tired of this. How many second chances are you afforded? I'm tired of your promises. I'm tired of your lies. I'm tired of your failures. It's over. Done. I have been as gracious as any God could have been. That's not how Jesus intercedes. He can't. That'd be, it would, a lot of people may intercede that way. That is not how Jesus Christ is our perfect intercessor. In fact, even a good lawyer wouldn't do it that way. That's not the way even a good lawyer would do. A good lawyer goes on the offense. That's what a good lawyer does. He says, I have a case before you. And it is solid. And it is my right to come before you. Because if he was just asking for mercy, it's over. That's not what he's asking for. God is just. The justice part would have to be disregarded if God was just merciful. And God is merciful. But if he was just merciful, he would have to get rid of his justice. And God cannot separate parts of who he is, right? Because we deserve to be separated from our life with him. We chose to reject him. We choose to reject him every day. If he's asking for mercy, we would have lost. Think about this. If you live in this country, if you're a citizen of this country, 
but you, just, you say one day, I'm going to reject its laws, I'm going to live the way I want to live, right? You're essentially saying what? I don't value what a citizen in this country values. I'm not going to live the way a citizen in this country is, is, is required to live. I'm rejecting the authority that is over me. You know what happens? You're going to get separated from the benefits of being a citizen. In fact, at some point, if it goes too far, you stop being a citizen. You're going to go to jail. You're going to lose your rights. You will be forsaken. That's what's going to happen. You know what Jesus does? Verse 27 to 28. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He, Jesus Christ, sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Mainly what's happening is this. Jesus Christ approaches the Father and he says, yes, you are a just judge. And yes, they are guilty. They deserve to die. Every one of them deserves to die. There is a debt that has been owed and it is a cosmic debt that is owed to you because of their sin. And the payment can only be paid in blood. That's the only way that the balance can be made right. I made that payment once for all with my blood. I did not deserve to die. But I made that payment once for all with my blood. And you are just. And I told you, I am paying for them. I'm paying for all. I'm paying for these people that you love. I love them. I'm paying for them once for all. You are a just God. You would not require two punishments for the same sin. You would never do that because you are just. And so it is my legal right to come before you to say, although they are guilty, the debt has been paid. Set them free. Not necessarily on the basis of your mercy, but on the basis of your justice will you set them free. Will you set them free because you are a good judge? And the price has been paid. The price has been paid. I'm not asking for their freedom on the basis of your mercy alone. I'm asking for their freedom on the basis of your righteousness, on the basis of your perfect justice. You will let them live because you are just, because I died suffered the ultimate injustice for all, for these people, for your people, will you let them live? That is a perfect case. That is a perfect case. Jesus is our perfect advocate. Every day we are trying to prove ourselves. Every day we're making arguments for ourselves. Every day we're trying to prove I'm okay. But remember, we said that we need somebody on the outside of ourselves to validate who we are. And if you live like that, if you just live trying to get the validation of people around us horizontally, right, knowing now that it is a vertical struggle, but we're trying to live, trying to get the validation of people vertically, you know, you're going to be anxious all your life. You're going to be angry all your life. You're going to be jealous all your life. You're going to be snobby all your life. 1 John 1, 9, printed in your word of encouragement. You know what it says? If... If you confess your sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins? No, that's not what the text says. If you look at, the, if you look at your word of encouragement, that's not the way it's printed. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Because Jesus Christ substituted himself for us, 
because he lived the life that you should live and he died the death that you should die so that the favor of God on the cross, I am forsaken, he cried out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out. I have no validation from the one person who's credible. The ultimate trial was when Jesus was on the cross. And yet, what did he say? Father, forgive them. Perfect advocate. Perfect advocate. To be in him is to have that kind of confidence because you are only as strong as your advocate and we have a rock solid advocate we have a rock solid advocate to be in him is to have that kind of poise to have that kind of confidence what he pleads for us is an infallible case a perfect case it should give you an unbreakable humility because you didn't deserve it that's grace that's mercy You didn't deserve it. It should give you an unbreakable confidence. Why? Because there is the validation that you need. There is the hope that you need. There is the love that you look for all your life. There is the approval that you've been looking for all your life. He died for you. The king of the universe died for you. There is the treasure. You want to know how beautiful you are? You want to know how, how important you are? You want to know how loved you are? There's the approval that you need. How do you apply it? Let's wrap this up. How do you apply it? Look at your call to worship. What does all that mean? You're probably standing there when the, when the presider came up and he read all these rules about how, what, what this high priest wears as an ephod, right? You know what the, you know what the ephod was? What the, when the high priest uh, it, it comes out, when he's presented, when he's dressed, he's covered with jewels. He's adorned with jewels. Ornaments, jewels, gold, silver, it was weighty. I think the presider said, hey, this means worship is serious. Worship is weighty. Worship is substantive. It is elaborate. Even the placement of the jewels was, was completely described. And that was a prescription. How, we were, how it was done. The net worth of the country was placed on that ethic. The net worth. And they wore that, Right? Lots of jewels, lots of gold, lots of silver. The high priest was incredibly wealthy. The high priest was adorned. When he came out, he was beautiful. So that when they see him, who's the high priest? He was your advocate. When they see him, they said, he is beautiful. He is amazing. This is brilliant. This is bright. This is amazing. You know why? Because he stands before God as your advocate. So that when God sees him, God says, you are beautiful, you are amazing, you are brilliant, you have been cleansed, you have been purified, you are righteous, you are in the word, and we are in him. That's why the names are written there. That's the meaning. If you look at your call to worship, that's why the names are there. We. Anytime you see the six and the six to twelve, it means the church, the whole church. Twelve tribes, twelve disciples, it's the church. You see, it's us. That's what it means. Completely covered. He is our representative. He is our advocate. That means when the Father looks at you, that's what he sees. You want to know how you are regarded? It's hard sometimes, right? Because when you do something wrong in front of your parents, there's this kind of inherent guilt. And that's the way we view our relationship with God. Because in a way, your parents... Right, somebody you highly respect, they're kind of put in a, almost a vertical relationship with you, right? 
it shouldn't be that way per se, but it's understandable, right? There are some people that you just view in a certain way, and they have a, almost like a vertical relationship with you. But I'm not talking about a human relationship that is that way, right? This is a cosmic vertical relationship, the ultimate vertical relationship, the ultimate judge, the ultimate king, the ultimate father. When the father looks at you, you know what he sees? Because we think when we've done something wrong, our father looks at us, and boy, he looks down, right? He says no, and he says you're bad, and he says, and you get punished. And that's the way we view God, but the thing is you have, if you can't let that mess with you. Yes, there's discipline. Yes, sometimes you get in trouble. Yes, because there are consequences to things that we do. And that happens all the time. You're living out some of those consequences now. But what if it's to teach you? What if it's because he's your father? You know how he views you still? I don't know any father that loves his child that he finds it fun to spank him. He finds it fun to discipline him. I don't know anybody here that loves another person in this church that has found it fun to address difficult things with them. I don't know a single person. Not if they love them, no. Right? You have to let this sink in your life. When God looks at you, even in suffering, he doesn't see this beat-up person. He doesn't see this war-torn fallible, flawed person. He sees somebody the way we look at our child when they're hurting. But you're adorned with jewels and gold and silver and you're cleansed and you're righteous and you're holy and you are just perfect before him. That's what our advocate has done for us. Nothing's going to change in your life Nothing's going to shape your life unless you let that truth sink in. Think what that will do for your self-esteem. It won't make you proud. It won't make you arrogant because you didn't deserve it. It's going to humble you. But it won't make you fall apart and it won't make you put yourself down and beat yourself up all the time either. Self-pity, you know? Everybody here knows somebody who's living in self-pity. Maybe you have lived in self-pity. You won't do that either. You know why? Because you know who you are. You know who you are. It's not just, I've been saved from my sins. There's this pardon. There's this forgiveness. You know what it is? It's, more, it's much more than that. It's the beauty and the righteousness and the jewels. Transfer. The theological term for that is, you probably heard it, is imputed. That means transfer. It's just a fancy way of saying it's been cosmically transferred to you so that that DNA gets etched into your DNA. That's what it means. That's what it means. Transfer to you. In him, I am absolute beauty. Apart from him, oh yeah, you're going to live a disastrous life. In him, you are absolutely beautiful. That's why the gospel is more than just, oh, I'm forgiven. It's I'm his son. It's more than just I'm pardoned. It's I am treasured, you see. They're two different things. You can be forgiven. If you've just lived as if you're forgiven, you're still going to live in guilt. You are treasured. It's the treasure of Jesus adorning you. It's the righteousness of Jesus adorning you. It's the holiness of Jesus adorning you. How do you know that? Jesus Christ, even though he was pure, even though he was innocent, what happened to him? He was arrested. 
and he was placed on trial. And the people said what? Even Pilate said, I don't see a reason to condemn this man. I don't see a reason to do that. Right? But the people said what? Condemn him. Crucify him. And on the cross, that was a human trial. He was rejected by all men. His friends departed from him. That was the human trial. On the cross, he suffered the ultimate trial. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have no advocate. No one is fighting for me. No one is standing for me. I'm hanging here and I'm left for dead. There is no validation. I have no advocate. Why? So that you would have an advocate. So that you would be accepted. Jesus Christ was held in the bondage of slavery so that you would be set free. Jesus Christ was rejected cosmically so that you would be accepted. Jesus Christ was disowned by God. My God, my God. He didn't call my father, my father. My God, my God. Why have you rejected me? Why have you disowned me? You know why? So that you could become sons, children of God. Perfect advocate. The gospel is not, oh, I must be good enough. It's Jesus Christ is more than enough as our high priest, perfect, and I am in him. If only you believe, if you only believe that you're, oh, you know what, oh, I'm, I'm forgiven, that's going to make you humble because you know you've sinned, but it's not going to make you confident. If you believe, oh, I'm loved by God, I'm loved the way, you know, you know we want to be, you know, we're told often, right, oh, I'm beautiful in him, that's going to make you very, very confident. It's not going to make you humble, you see, you have to see that only in the gospel that you are more sinful than you could ever imagine and yet you've been adorned with the jewels of Christ. That's what it means to be forgiven and more loved than you could ever dream in him. That creates a very, very particular strain of humility and poise, humility and confidence. Do you see that? It's not based on your merit. It's based on his merit. It's not based on your righteousness. It's based on his righteousness. It's not based on your goodness. It's based on Christ's goodness, his wisdom, his righteousness, his holiness, his redemption, his glory. One day, this is all going to be over, friends. We're, we're walking on a tightrope to eternity. It's all going to be over one day. It's all going to end. And we're going to be in him forever, perfectly, for all time. All time. What does that mean for us? How do you apply it? You know, I've got to end this. So I'm not going to have to go in. I can't go into this. I have like another 10 minutes here, right? I'm not going to give you those 10 minutes. We'll save for another year when we come back to Hebrews some other time. We'll come back to this, okay? God doesn't, God doesn't want me to share this with you, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share this very quick. I'm just going to rattle this off, all right? Here we go. It's going to give you a new identity. We talked about this, right? It's going to give you a new identity. I wish I could go into it. We can't right? I just wasted airtime. We, we, it's going to give you a new freedom. It's going to give you a new freedom. Freedom from guilt, freedom from shame. It's going to give you a new, I wish I could go into this, all right? It's going to give you comfort. It's going to give you comfort because it's solid. It is rock solid, okay? Are you angry? Are you weeping? Are you bitter? Look at Jesus. Jesus wept. Jesus was angry, right? Jesus was angry. Jesus was weeping. Jesus suffered poverty. Jesus suffered loneliness and rejection and betrayal, right? He did all that. He suffered just like that. You don't think you're going to suffer? That's what the author is saying in a very gracious way. Jesus suffered all those things. 
That's why he's even more perfect as your advocate. He's there. All right? That's going to give you a humility and a confidence. You put those things together, it's going to make you resilient in suffering, resilient in criticism. Listen, I'm a pastor. I get killed every day, guys. Okay? I get killed every day. Pastors, presidents, we get killed all the time. Right? Some of those things are true. How do you stand? You think I stand here become qualified? You know, I'm qualified to be a marketing strategist. That's what I'm qualified to be. I'm better than all of you at that. I don't know if I'm better than all of you at that. I'm pretty good at that, okay? See, I'm making a case for myself. We, I stand here because I'm called. And you're sitting there because you're called. All right? That's going to give you joy. Lots of joy. Everlasting joy. You didn't deserve it. You can't lose it. I wish I could go into it. It's going to give you courage. It's going to give you courage. Jesus Christ, the, the hardest suffering that, a, that he could endure was the rejection of the Father. And yet he said... He's getting insulted, criticized, torn apart, and he was innocent, completely innocent. You know what he said? Father will get them. That's not what he said. He said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Poise, courage, and suffering. Friends, the verdict has been won. The verdict has been earned by Christ. Apply it. Let's pray.